town, so excited to to do that. And it's interesting when you get a new roommate and you look in the fridge and you see the food that they have and you think, oh, <laughs> that's how healthy people eat. <laughs> um, I must say, in my time in Minnesota, I've gotten much, much more liberal in my usage of bug spray than I ever used. In Ohio, I never even used it. And in Illinois, I feel like I put some on like, my arm, like, okay, hopefully that helps. And now it's just like, like a L'Oreal commercial. <laughs> because I'm worth it. And, uh, You left now. Um, the passage this morning does talk about judgment and the return of Christ, two subjects that never um, cause disputes in the church. Um, no, but I'm, I'm excited to preach from this passage this morning. This is one of the more controversial passages in the entire Bible, so thank you, Eric. For... Uh, Revelation chapter 20, and uh, I will read from the ESV today. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had not deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, pray for this study today of your most holy word that it can ultimately point us to you. May nobody hear this whose name is not written in the book of life. May we be pointed to life, Lord, to the cross of Christ, 
to your grace in our lives. Lord, I pray for this evening service that we're kicking off this evening. I pray that it can be a light to this community and that it can reach people. I pray for people in Fergus Falls who we don't know, but who I am confident will be joining us in this next season in the life of Cornerstone. I pray, Lord, for our nation on this, the 15th anniversary of September 11th, an event that still scars us. I pray for peace in our world, Lord, for you to work miracles that only you can do, for your goodness and gospel to go out throughout the world. In Jesus' name, amen. May 21st, 2011, Harold Camping, the Christian evangelist and radio personality, had predicted the world to end on that day. It wasn't the first time Camping had made such a prediction. And when May 21st came and went, it wasn't the last. And Camping did what he had done. The previous times he had made such predictions. He adjusted his prediction. Charles Taze Russell was the founder of a Bible study movement in the 19th century. He predicted the end of times to come in 1874. And then in 1914. After Russell died, students of his founded the Jehovah's Witnesses and predicted the end to come in 1941. And then 1975. As the year 2000 came closer, more and more people predicted that either 1999 or 2000 would be the last year on earth for people. Apocalyptic predictions are not unique to Christianity. They extend to other religions and cultures. Perhaps you remember in 2012, the end of the Mayan calendar. Within Christianity, these types of predictions can be traced back to within a generation of the time of Christ. And as historians have looked back, in every generation, there have been Christians who thought that their generation was the last generation. Again, in our passage today, it does talk about the return of Christ. And that is an important aspect of our theology. It's important to think about, but unfortunately, sometimes people can become preoccupied with it. If you flip through the TV, perhaps you've seen various networks, various Bible networks, some pastors basically devote their entire ministry to the end times and to prophecy. But this is undoubtedly a mistake. In terms of the specifics of the time of his return, Jesus said that no one knew that except for God himself. Again, it's an issue where it is good to have a healthy appreciation, but not a total preoccupation. The end times, the millennium. And there are some terms in your bulletin today. A millennium is a thousand years. And I thought it'd be helpful just to, I don't know how clear this will be, but to just very briefly this morning um, explain a couple things in regards to different views on the millennium, uh, just so we can get exposed to the different types of terms. Now, Cornerstone is a member of the Evangelical Free Church of America. The Free Church is pre-millennial. The Statement of Faith for the Free Church has just... 10 articles in it, but one of them is devoted to this subject, Article 9. I think it's also worth mentioning that with the different views, while this is an important subject, this is not a subject of gospel-defining importance. And again, as you can see, there's the statement of faith. So first, I will explain the premillennial view. Historical premillennialism 
is a view that was common in the early church. Revelation 20, our chapter this morning, is the clearest teaching in the Bible on that subject. In this view, Jesus will return. He will have an earthly reign for a thousand years. The believers in Christ who are alive at his return and all previous Christians who have, who have died will be raised and will reign with Christ for that thousand year period. And it will be a golden age with Christ reigning on earth. At the end of the thousand year reign, Satan will be released from captivity. Many of the unbelievers who lived during the millennium, who have been under the influence of Christ during that thousand years, will ultimately turn back to Satan when Satan is released. There's a second premillennial view that is also accepted in the free church that I will very briefly talk about called dispensational premillennialism or dispensationalism. There's a lot that can be said on that subject. Um, if you're familiar with the Left Behind series, it's from that sort of point of view. Um, and again, in dispensationalism, it's also premillennial. Christ will come back and reign for a thousand years. Again, with all these views, there's a lot more that can be said than what we have time for this morning. But I'm also happy after the service or any other time to, to talk about these because uh, it, it can get complicated. Again, in both of these views, Jesus will return and will usher in his millennial reign, his thousand-year reign on earth. Now, very briefly explaining the other two views, uh, post-millennialism is in the yellow. Post-millennialism, it's called that because the return of Christ will happen post-millennial, maybe after the millennium. There will be a thousand-year millennial period that will be followed by Christ returning to earth. Postmillennialism believes that the church will become such a significant influence in society and that so many people will be coming to faith that this will usher in the return of Christ. And a fourth view in the green, there is amillennialism. In this view, there is no millennium. They view the current church age that we have been in since the ascension of Christ to symbolically be the millennium. And at the end of this current age, that is when Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. So like I said, there are different views on this subject. There are also areas where all four of these views agree. For instance, all four views agree on a literal, bodily second coming of Christ. And the fact that it is a bodily return is important. As I mentioned earlier, there have been different predictions before as to specific days where Jesus would come back. And when those people get proven wrong, they never say that they're wrong. They always have some sort of caveat to how they were right. They might say something like, well, Jesus returned spiritually, but we couldn't see him. No, that's not how it works. During the life ministry of Jesus, he said that he would die and raise. It wasn't some sort of spiritual resurrection. It was a literal death. It was an event that could be verified by people who were there, who saw it, and who interacted with him after he'd risen from the dead. And it's the same way with his return. It's not some spiritual return or some obscure thing only known to a couple people. It will be a literal bodily return of Christ. The millennium is undoubtedly in this passage today, and it wouldn't be faithful to Revelation 20 to not address the millennium. But I also think people can get a little bit short-sighted in terms of just focusing on that in this passage. In Revelation 20, we see the final defeat of Satan. We see God's saints 
Everyone who has faith in the gospel reigning with Christ. So in this passage this morning, what I'm going to do, there are three visions from John. So we're going to look at those three visions. And really, I think the main idea of this passage is that God ultimately judges ultimately. God ultimately judges ultimately. So again, in the text, John has three visions. In the first vision, John sees an angel seizing the devil and casting him into a pit. It's, an, it's interesting that it's an angel that does this and not Jesus. I think we oftentimes make this mistake in the Bible of thinking that God is good and that Satan is some sort of equal opposite to him. No, that's not the case. An angel who's empowered by God is more powerful than the devil. In verse 2, the evil one is called the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. So it's focusing on the various names of the devil throughout the Bible. And the text says that the angel threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And that little while is a thousand years with Christ reigning on earth. But while he is sealed away, the devil is totally incapacitated. In verse 4, the vision continues. What did I do? In verse 4, the vision continues. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And on the thrones, John sees all of the people of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image. Especially singled out in this group are the Christian martyrs, those who have given their lives for the sake of the gospel. But it's ultimately referring to all believers. Elsewhere in Revelation and elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks of the followers of Christ reigning with Christ. The text talks of those who had not worshipped the beast. Now, Revelation is an extremely visual book. When I hear of a beast, I think of... But I think it's best not to think of a specific creature. The beast is meant to contrast the lamb. The lamb is led to slaughter, whereas the beast devours. The beast, I take it as a reference to oppressive economic and political and religious systems in the world. The Bible talks about the mark of the beast. Perhaps you've heard that language before. Just like with signs of the end times that people interpret, there's also been a lot of theorizing as to what exactly the mark of the beast is. Barcodes are the mark of the beast. Social security numbers. The new chip that's in all of our debit cards. The mark of the beast isn't a tattoo. It's not concerned with a physical marking on a person. It's not a scarlet letter or some black ink smudge across our foreheads. I think it's helpful to put it this way. In Revelation 7, it talks about the believers in Christ being sealed with him. And I think it's helpful to think of a seal like a letter that's been sealed closed with like a wax seal. Uh, or even a cave that's been sealed closed with a boulder. Um, that we are sealed with Christ. We are marked with Christ. And the opposite of that is the mark of the beast. The text tells us that as all believers in Christ, we have the opportunity to look forward to reigning with Christ. And the text says this. 
is the first resurrection. The second resurrection is for those who are not in Christ. The text tells us that, they came to, that the believers came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. In the second resurrection, the purpose of it is judgment. As I've said, the Bible addresses reigning with Christ in other places. And while the Bible does not give all the ins and outs of exactly what that looks like, it will be a time of immense blessing. First of all, because we will be reigning with Christ. We will reign with Christ and be priests of God and of Christ. It will be walking on the earth with Jesus. It will be a time of peace. It will be a time of supreme joy in the goodness of Christ who has come again, of an even richer worship. Apart from the stresses and diseases and frailties and frustrations and conflicts of everyday life, purely focusing on God and rejoicing in his grace and gospel. You may be wondering, well, why even do that? Why doesn't he just bring us up to heaven? The Bible doesn't tell us exactly why. But it seems that part of the reason is that the faithful will still have an opportunity to witness and evangelize those who have not placed faith in Christ. It is showing the graciousness of God and the patience that he has with his people. Although ultimately that period will come to an end. For the people who are in Christ, you die once and are resurrected and reign with him. But for those who have opposed God, who have rejected Christ, who have not accepted his grace, there are two deaths. You die physically, and then you experience the second death, which is the ultimate and eternal separation from God. So that's the first scene. In the second scene of John's vision, we see the release of Satan in the final judgment of Satan, who has been released to again deceive the nations. Once again, you might be wondering, why was he released to deceive the nations? And once again, the text doesn't tell us the exact reason. Ultimately, because it's part of God's plan. As the text tells us earlier in verse 3, that after the devil is sealed away for a thousand years, he must be released. Again, during the thousand year reign, the people who are living during that millennium still have the opportunity to come to Christ in faith. So it's also showing the grace of God. For those who don't, I feel like this passage also illustrates the justice of God. Ultimately, when a person refuses to turn to God and look to the cross for salvation, it's not about not having enough time. There are some who will never repent. In verse 8, It says that the devil will deceive the nations at the four corners. This refers to the global scope. The text mentions Gog and Magog. Once again, there's dispute over exactly what that refers to. I think one helpful way to look at it is as a collective reference to either the, the, the individuals or the nations themselves who oppose Christ and his gospel. In verses 8 and 9, it talks of a final battle. Now, it's important to understand that this is not a battle of evenly matched opponents. This isn't some epic battle scene from Lord of the Rings. No, Satan gets dominated. For Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, their time will come. And not just for them, but ultimately for everyone who opposes God and who rejects his gospel, who rejects the free gift of grace that he offers. 
Verse 9 returns to the battle language and talking of the vast army with Gog and Magog surrounding the camp of the saints. As with many other places in Revelation, the language here is extremely visual. We can picture this. But again, some of this language might be symbolic. The point doesn't necessarily need to be that the, all the people of God are all specifically in the same exact geographical place at the same time to be surrounded. It could refer to all the people of God as the entire universal church of God and those who have faith in his gospel and a spiritual attack or attempted attack from the devil and his minions that they will ultimately, the people of God will ultimately be insulated from as God, as God will defeat Satan in this final battle before Satan can again devour the faithful believers in Christ. But at the same time, there will be people who were never really Christians, who upon the release of Satan will turn back to him. As far as Satan and the false prophet and the beast, verse 10 concludes, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The defeat of Satan. Finally, the third scene in John's vision, the final judgment of the faithful and the unfaithful. Again, God ultimately judges ultimately. Here, John dramatically describes the throne room of God. I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. In this text, God is so glorious that in the vision, earth and sky fled away. God is overwhelmingly spectacular and glorious. And before the great white throne, the book of life is opened, and all are judged. Those who are in Christ, and those who are apart from Christ. Ultimately, for those who are in Christ, we are saved by the work of Christ. We are saved by his grace, his gospel, his blood, and his cross. There is again an element of mystery, because in that judgment, our actions, our lives do still come up. But it is ultimately the redemption through Jesus that justifies us and reconciles us to God. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And the ink that writes your name in the, book of the, in the book of life is the blood of the Lamb. And for those who are not in Christ, they have no advocate. They have no redemption. Their lives cannot live up to God's standards because God's standard is perfection and holiness. They do experience the second death, the final judgment, the lake of fire, the eternal separation from God. Hell is a tough doctrine for many. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis sums up what I think many think. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and specifically, of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. It is a challenging doctrine. We're fine with the idea of a loving God, but we're less accepting of the idea of a judging God. It can seem almost unfair. We can feel tempted to justify why hell doesn't exist. Perhaps you've had a conversation with someone like that before. who just could not accept that a good and loving God could possibly allow hell to exist. Perhaps some of you feel that way yourselves. Or maybe we think it's, if there is a hell, 
It's just for the people who are really, really, really bad. But Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. It's also noteworthy in the Bible that the person who has the most to say about hell is Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject his gospel. It's to reject his grace. And ultimately, there is no excuse in the Bible for this rejection. God displays his glory and grandeur in the universe and in our world, as Romans 1.18 through 20 tells us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Nobody is separated from God because they didn't have a chance to know of his existence. But we do need to have a desire for the gospel to be proclaimed, for people to know that forgiveness is found in Jesus. Again, people who reject hell sometimes will question how a holy God can judge. But I feel like this shows the sinfulness of the person who's questioning God. It is putting yourself on the great white throne and making demands of how the God who created you should act and having the audacity to question his righteousness. There are people in our community and all throughout the world who choose not to believe in God and reason that if he exists, since they've been pretty good people, that if there was a heaven, they should go there. But why? Why would you get to be with God when you don't believe in Him and when you don't live a life as if you want to be with Him? If the gospel was about earning salvation, maybe that would still be possible for those people. But the gospel is precisely the opposite. It's a salvation that you could not earn that was bought for you. And all you have to do is accept it and to believe in what Christ has done for you. We do have choices we get to make. In the preceding chapter of our text today, at Revelation 19, it talks about the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus is the groom in this image, and the church is the bride of Christ. Now, when a man proposes to a woman, if she says yes, they plan to get married. But if she says no, that's it. If she says no to the proposal of the guy who wants to marry her, he doesn't say, well, too bad, you have to marry me anyway. Jesus, the groom, has made an offer to the whole world, to all who will accept it. And if we say no, if we reject it, then why on earth would we be with him in heaven? Why would God make you be with him? God extends grace freely. He extends the offer of salvation to all who will accept it. But what's not an option is saying no, is saying no to the gift and then trying to earn your way to God. It's saying no to the gift for your entire lifetime and thinking that you'll still have it. The vanity of thinking we can make ourselves worthy of a holy God. The vanity of opposing God, of rejecting him and thinking that you should still get to be with him anyway. We think we're good people. But the greatest sin we can commit is the rejection of the God who made us. God does honor the choice a person makes. The choice a person makes to reject him, he will honor that. 
But what he will not allow is for us to approach him on our terms. When there is no way for us to earn God, but for God to make a way through Jesus and to reject that and to want to decide our own terms, God will not allow that. Hell is the logical conclusion of wanting to live a life without God. If a person doesn't want God now, then why would they want him in eternity? I love this quote by D.A. Carson. Hell is not filled with people who are now holy. It's filled with people who still love their sin and will not bend the knee and receive the punishment for that sin in an ongoing cycle, world without end. And that's what the gospel saves us from. I think that's important to understand. God isn't rejecting people who desire to know him. People who come to him knowing their unworthiness, knowing their sinfulness, trusting in his grace. God is just. His judgments are just. As I alluded to earlier, one thing that some scholars of Revelation believe is that part of the reason why God casts Satan away for a thousand years and then releases him is to show us that to a rebellious heart, it's not a matter of having enough time. People aren't condemned because they didn't have enough time. They aren't cast away from God because they didn't have an opportunity to know him. God isn't vindictive. He's not losing his temper arbitrarily. But he is righteous. He is perfect. And heaven is a perfect place. Again, as verse 11 in this passage tells us, God is overwhelmingly glorious. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. We diminish the work of Christ when we have the audacity to think that we can reject him and that that doesn't really matter. It shows a failure to understand the weight of our sins. Sins so costly that they cost Christ his life. That's what it costs. That's what it took. The gospel isn't, well, nobody's perfect, so just try to be decent. It's that you're a sinner. And you are totally separated from the holy and eternal God who made you because of your sin. Some liberal churches undermine the necessity of believing in Jesus or reduce him to some great teacher and the best possible role model of how you could live a life, but not really as being the way and the truth and the life. But again, that cheapens the work of Christ. Because he didn't come to be our guru. He came to die for us. He came to make a way for us to be with God. But still, there are people who will undermine the doctrine of hell or who will try to justify why it doesn't exist or why they don't need to believe that it exists. But doing this introduces an infinitely greater problem. It makes Jesus a liar. Hell is eternal. The text says, without end. Some favor a few that the people who don't believe just cease to exist. This is called annihilationism. But the problem with this is it's just simply not what the Bible teaches. Some people complain about the length of time. Why does it have to be eternal? Several reasons. One, again, people who are separated from God are not holy. They don't desire God. And because the length of the punishment does not make a person holy. Because it's a crime of eternal consequences, rejecting God. Yes, the people who are in hell don't like it. Hell isn't a good place. 
I've heard atheists before mock the idea of hell. Well, it'll be more fun because that's where my friends will be. No, hell is not a fun place. It's a place of darkness and despair and judgment and separation from God. But something that I think we overlook when we think about hell, while the people who wind up there don't like it, they also don't want God. You have your entire life of opposing God. Just because a person is in hell, dislikes being there, does not mean that they desire the holy God or to repent and turn to him. Because heaven is a place that's all about God. Heaven isn't desirable just because it's not hell. Heaven is the abode of the Lord. And the great divorce, C.S. Lewis, makes a profound observation. The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. The text is telling us that there will be a day when we will be held to account. For those of us who are in Christ, by faith in what Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection for us, he has taken away the penalty of sins because we could not. The righteousness of Christ as credited to us as though it were our own. That's what it means to have your name written in the book of life. You may be asking, but what about a person who's never even heard the gospel? Again, I think there's an element of mystery to salvation. There are people in the Old Testament who are not Israelites, who are not working, walking with the Lord God in that community, but who still were walking in a true faith to that God. In Luke 11, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who, receive, for everyone who asks, receives. And to the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. There have been incredible testimonies about the way how the gospel has broken through to people who were seeking it. People who knew that their own goodness, their own lives, it wasn't enough. People who want to repent from their wicked ways and turn to God. No one is separated from God because they didn't have a chance. I mentioned in the beginning of this text, at the beginning of this sermon, that this text isn't just about the millennium and the end times. We do also see the judgment of God. However, this passage is also another step in closing up the drama of the Bible. It's the final defeat of Satan. In Genesis 1, the Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the sky and the lands, the birds and the fish, the heavenly bodies, and finally, he creates humanity. And after all of these things, the text tells us that after each, that God said it was good. In Genesis 3, Satan tempts Adam and Eve. He deceives them. They fall into sin. And the stain of sin has been on humanity ever since. From Genesis 3 to here in Revelation 20, where Satan is finally cast away. The Bible has 1,189 chapters. Sin enters the world in the third chapter, and we finally see it being excised in the third to last chapter. Yet throughout the whole history of the drama of redemption, God has been displaying his holiness. He has been redeeming his people. In this passage, the unholy trinity of the devil, the beast, and the false prophet have been sent away. Jesus died and was raised to life. 
in the end, the devil will be sent away and raised again to death and judgment. Jesus is coming back because he said he would. The redemption from God is not just for his people, but for his entire fallen creation. Sin-affected creation. Until Jesus comes again, there will still be sickness and death. There will still be sin. But at the return of Christ, during his millennium, during his final judgment, all of those things will forever be sent away. This isn't some pie in the sky hope. This is what God's word tells us. The same word through which God spoke the cosmos and the earth into being. The same scripture through which God promised to come into our world and fulfilled. And said he would die. And he fulfilled it. And Jesus died and rose like he said he would. And he says he's coming back. He says he's returning and he will because God is trustworthy. God is faithful. God is good. Loving God. Worshipping him. Like I said earlier, heaven is a place that is all about God. Worshipping him, knowing him, serving him, sharing in his love. Does the holy God who has the book of life and who decides its contents to get into it, all you have to do is trust, is to believe, is to turn to him in repentance. And God is faithful. It's a promise that he has made. And whatever you believe today, it's an offer that he extends to you. Today, and every day, to accept his gospel, to walk in faith in God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Again, thank you for your holy word and for your gospel. May all of us be written in the book of life and share that love to others. And spread that for your glory, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me, please? <clears throat>